part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. In your Bibles to Genesis 2. Genesis 2, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we, we dropped off here. We were talking about what is really biblical marriage. You know, what is the foundation of biblical marriage? And we saw that it was all laid out there in Genesis 2, that it is a gift from God. It wasn't because of some, you know, forgotten thing that God forgot to put into Adam. He created a what theologians call a purposeful void so that he could then take Eve, create Eve from Adam's rib and, and, and present as a treasure to there and, and something that would very much be this, not just a compliment to Adam, but very much God's answer in this helpmate. And we began to see all that and we went all the way down to verse 24 last time when God actually is the one performing the marriage and, and he says, for this leaving a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. And so we kind of left there and I, I said uh, at the end of the service there that in verse 25, that they, that they looked at one another and, and the man and the wife were both naked and not ashamed. I said, there's a lot to that verse 25. And I said, I'll, I'll follow up next week. Wife well, was forgetting that it was family week the next week. And, you know, that's not really, even though it is not really meant to be a sensual, sexual thing, that they were naked and not afraid, it was one of those things I, I truly thought that it was probably best just to go in another direction last week. But I want to pick up there. Because it is really hard for us to hear that verse, verse 25, and not think of it in a sensual, sexual way. We just hear the word naked, and there are certain things, impulses in our minds and our hearts, that just because of the culture that we've been born in, because of the nature that we have, that it just kind of, you know, a thought process begins there. And, and I want to challenge that cultural thought process, even that human process this morning, by going to God's Word and seeing, you know, what could this really mean? So open your Bibles, chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 2. Let's go back to verse 24 where we see this pronouncement of marriage, God giving marriage, this gift of marriage to Adam and Eve, and then that pertinent verse 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast. If you have the King James, it says to cleave. You're to leave and you're to cleave and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, quick question. Is this before or after what we call the fall, that when sin entered into the world, when, when Eve takes of that fruit that was forbidden, and Adam does not do his uh, husband leadership role of preventing that to happen, so, so they're together in that sin. Is this occurrence in chapter 2, is it before or after the fall? Okay, it's before. So, so there's still this point of perfection and, you know, there's a certain part of that that uh, we, we have to understand that they are sinless and get a, guilt is not in existence. So you might be able to read verse 25 and said that the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And you might be able to say, well, you know, because there's not sin yet. The other conclusion that you can come to is that maybe they just had the perfection of perfect bodies. You know, God had just created them. Everything is in the right place. Nothing is sagging. Nothing is doing this. Everything is just right. And they were going, man, what's not to be ashamed of? And so, you know, we could draw those conclusions. And and I'm not here to, to debate that that wasn't part of the case. But if we're really to understand the fullness of this, folks, I, I promise you that at the heart of verse 25, 
There's much, something much more going on than the perfect body. There's something much more going on than something of a sexual and sensual nature. Even though I am not denying that there was a part of that that really does exist there. God created that within Adam and Eve. They were attracted to one to another, both in a sensual way, in a sexual way, but in so many other ways. And so when we see this in verse 25, what is it that, you know, why is it that they were able to be there Really, with, not just without clothing, but, but nakedness in every sense of the word and not be ashamed. And I want to challenge you with this thought. And I will tell you right up front that this is heavily borrowed and influenced from John Piper. I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago a, a book um, about this momentary marriage. And it, it, it forever changed kind of the mindset that I had about marriage. And I think he just kind of aces that particular test. And so uh, uh, some of this is drawn from the insight. And the more that I began to look into it, apart from that, because never take, I don't care who the guy is, don't take his word for it. You go back and do your own research. You do your own study. Let the scripture speak out what the truth is. And I found that, you know, man, John Piper really got this right. And that initial insight that he gave in his book, uh, I began to see throughout uh, the, the rest of the Bible. I believe that what this really means when it says that they were naked and not afraid, that there was a total absence of vulnerability in the relationship because of what God had just pronounced in verse 24. Remember a couple of weeks where you said there's really three parts of this pronouncement of marriage? That the first part was, okay, when he says to leave and to cleave and the two shall become one, that the first part, this leaving, doesn't mean that you necessarily have to leave your parents' house because in the Middle East, especially in that time, you know, there was a lot of people that, you know, four or five, maybe, you know, if they were living that long, they, they would live together. The generations kind of lived together. They didn't always live apart. But what was said is that this leaving is where before the primary relationship, the priority relationship in your life is that of the, the children and the parents, that God pronounces this marriage and he says, now this is the priority relationship. That marriage, I don't care how many children you have, I don't care how many, you know, how wonderful your mother and father are and all those different things, that this is now the priority relationship. So that was the first part. And then he talked about this cleaving, this holding fast. The, the Hebrew word would even kind of give us an indication of a gluing together in modern times. And what we're saying there, that there was a permanence. I'm here. I'm not going through thick and thin. And that's where we said a lot of these vows came from. The, the, for, you know, the, the, uh, better and for worse, richer and poorer, sickness and health. That there's this element of permanence. Not only is this the priority relationship in my life, earthly life, but this is a permanent relationship. And then that last part, and the two became one. There's an element of partnership there. Not just in working out the finances. Hey, you do this, you do that. I'll do the dishes, you do the yard. It's not just that kind of partnership, but there's this partnership in life. And so we begin to see that. And I believe that when it says that they were naked and not afraid, that it really meant that there was this lack of vulnerability that they had because of what God had just pronounced. What had he just pronounced? Let, let me simplify it this. The covenant of marriage. Covenant is this, this agreement, this heartfelt agreement, this uh, applying yourself as God has made a covenant with Israel. And Israel didn't go to, to God and say, can we be your people? No, God in his mercy and his grace, he came to the people. He came to Abraham and said, okay, I'm going to call you out to be my people. And he makes covenant with them. He, he made that with 
Adam in the beginning. He makes it with Noah. He makes it there with Abraham. He makes it with David. We see all these covenants being made. And why is there more than one covenant? Because we kept on breaking it until there's a final covenant that is made through Jesus Christ and fulfilled in all totality. So that's the covenant that God asked us to come into in in marriage. And there's this covenant and it gives this feeling, okay, I can be just, I can be me. Why? Because you're not leaving because I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to get everything right. You're not leaving. This is the priority relationship. It is permanent and we're partners through thick and thin. Now let's test the waters of that. Is it really because of this covenant that was made? Well, let's kind of play real life for a second. What happens to your level of vulnerability when your spouse makes it clear that your marriage is the priority earthly relationship in their life? Vulnerability starts to to fade away. What happens to vulnerability in your life, males, females, husbands, wives, when um, they make it clear that they're not leaving no matter what? As Carly and I kid it many times, you know, murder will probably come before divorce. You know, murder has been a thought every once in a while, you know, but not divorce. You know, we're staying, we're staying. I don't care how hard it gets, we're staying. What happens to the vulnerability when, when, in, in your heart, in your mind, when your spouse, your mate says, I am staying? And what happens when they say, hey, we are partners in this? You know, the things, your influence and and, and what you believe and and what you add to this, you truly are my helpmate in this. Folks, when we put those three things in this, that are parts of this covenant that God established there in marriage, that he has established with us, then all of a sudden the vulnerability begins to to, to fall away. Let's test it from the opposite side. And in very realistic terms, what happens to your level of vulnerability when, um, you know, your spouse allows other relationships to become priority. It could be the kids. It could be job. It could be best friends. It could be a lot of different things. It could be even their own mother and father. And we talked about the dangers of, of being a daddy's girl or mom's boy. There's nothing wrong with being a daddy's, you know, girl and a mama's boy. In theory, even after you're married, just don't do it in practice. Because the minute that, you know, you are that, 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 Daddy's girl, and you hold daddy there in a place rightfully, scripturally, that, that your husband should be, it, it just doesn't work well. It just doesn't play out well. So what happens to the anxiety, to, to this vulnerability that you feel when all of a sudden you begin to see in your spouse that maybe there's another relationship in their life that becomes priority? What happens when in the midst of that argument, you hear words like, well, fine, we'll just get a divorce then. I mean, all of a sudden that vulnerability, you know, those words that you want to take back, hey, I didn't mean it, I was just angry. But just the speaking of those words, just kind of putting them out there, that level of anxiety begins to go up. And what happens when they don't treat you like a partner and you're left out of decisions? And every one of those, see the connection of what God instituted, what he said, okay, here's what I want this covenant of marriage to be. It's the same covenant. It's based on the covenant that I make with you that I'm not leaving you. 
making it a priority. You're, you're a priority in my life, and, and I'm going to go partner now even in your life. When he makes all those declarations and what he does through Jesus Christ on the cross, folks, he elevates the call to this covenant of marriage. Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed, not just because they had two perfect bodies, which I believe that they did, not just because they enjoyed marriage as God, uh, you know, uh, it was early days, it was the honeymoon period. I, I believe that they were naked and not afraid is because they were in the beauty of this covenant relationship. And unfortunately, it doesn't last. You go to Genesis chapter 3. In fact, turn over to Genesis chapter 3. And we begin to see what happens, again, after this thing that we call the fall. Anytime I mention the word the fall, what I'm talking about is when sin entered into the world. Genesis chapter 3, when Eve is deceived and and Adam is not taking his leadership role there, that he was commanded back in in chapter 2, even before uh, Eve is around, God gives him the, the understanding that he's to lead this home and he doesn't even have a home yet. And so they sin, and that's what we call the fall. They fell from the grace of God, from perfection of what God had created them to be, and, and now they were imperfect. They were sinners. They, all of a sudden, this lack of vulnerability, now they were vulnerable in every aspect. Look what happens, Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. They, they rebel against God, and they do what is right in their own eyes. They have this, this moment of rebellion that they're just not going to follow God's commands. He said, you can eat from any tree you want to, just don't eat from this one. And, and, and he tells Adam, you are to lead and make sure that you're leading your family. And they both fell miserably. You know, we can say, well, it was all Eve's fault. But, but, you know, who does God call the, the sin out on, really? He calls that sin of Adam. They're, they're both compliant in this sin, and they're both declaring a rebellion and kind of this individual kind of choice in their life away from the will of God. That's what sin is. They made themselves the king, the queen of their own lives. And do you know what happens right after that? I mean, sin comes in this world. The fall happens. And do you know what the very first practical effect of sin was? Verse 7. Look what it says in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. It's not like, oh, my goodness, we need to run down the altar. We need to pray. It's not like they said, okay, here comes God. You know, that kind of happens right after that. They notice that, that they begin to hide from God. Why are you hiding when we were naked and we were ashamed? Who told you we were naked? You know, all that happened. What was the first immediate thing? This covenant relationship of marriage that God had given as a gift to Adam and Eve. The first thing that we see there is that they realize their nakedness. Now, again, I don't think that all of a sudden their bodies began to age dramatically in that five seconds. And they said, you know, you used to really be sharp when you were young, but now that you have sinned, you know, you just, now, I, I, don't th- I think they still had a perfection of the bodies in, in, as far as in a visible way that they were still just as handsome, as beautiful as they were, maybe in just those moments before. But now sin entered into their life, and all of a sudden there's a vulnerability because the perfection of that relationship 
that they had with God and the perfection of the relationship that they had with each other now was tarnished. It was gone. And all of a sudden, those three parts of the covenant, (laughs) you're a top priority. I will never leave. We're partners in this. It was tainted. All of a sudden, Adam is asking, man, if Eve took that and, and you know, she did something that she wasn't supposed to do, she, she didn't really obey God, she obeyed her own selfish desire, what if she has another selfish desire? And, and Eve could have said the same thing about Adam. Man, if he wasn't protecting me like he was supposed to protect me, if he wasn't leading like he was supposed to be leading, then, then what if he doesn't lead tomorrow or next week or, or down the road? Do you see the vulnerability that instantly comes in to their lives? Folks, this nakedness is not just sensual and sexual. It is that. I mean, it, it's not minus that, but it is so much more than that. It's the very spirit of their hearts. It's the very vulnerability that all of a sudden that which was perfect was not perfect anymore. First to each other and then to God. Look at verse 8. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. And I challenge you that humanity has been hiding ever since. Ever since that time. We have been, there's been an element of us hiding from a holy God. Why? Because we know our imperfections. We know that we're not perfect. You see, something so significant happened in Genesis 3 that totally changed the foundation of the first marriage. It had been established as a covenant marriage, a covenant relationship, a leaving, cleaving partnership. And it was transformed into a consumer relationship. It went from a covenant relationship... And we can, I can trust you, you can trust me. We're not leaving, we are staying... And all of a sudden, there was a consumer aspect of it. I'm not trying to be cute here, but, and certainly no pun intended, as she consumed the fruit. But, but Eve becomes the first consumer. She's the first one that makes a choice. This is what I want. And do you see what, that happens, what happens to the marriage at that point? When Adam and Eve become consumers rather than covenant keepers? Here's the bad news, guys. You and I were born with this consumer mindset. The Bible says that we were born with this nature of sin. Forget this whole, you know, children are so innocent. You keep the nursery for the two-year-olds. You'll kind of wash that away really quick, won't you? Now, this sin nature, this consumer nature is part of our very first breath. We are consumers because now we are born in sin. And so this is terrible news that that we're never going to be able to really have this covenant relationship, that we're always, always going to be oriented toward this consumer relationship in marriage. Save Christ Jesus. I don't want to be foolish. I don't want to be arrogant. And I don't want to say that two people who do not know Jesus Christ cannot have a good marriage. There's a thing called common grace that God has allowed to exist in this world. And it is his grace. It is still his grace and it's common grace. And even lost people are recipients of some common grace. It's not saving grace. It's just grace. And part of that is also that we were made and created in his image. 
And so as image bearers, every human being is an image bearer of God. And so there's some things that just, you know, it means that two lost people, people that don't know Christ, could have a pretty good marriage. But they're never going to have the covenant marriage, and they're never going to, even in that, they're going to have a consumer marriage. They've just put some of their consuming appetite off to the side. I've seen guys that that were wonderful husbands, wives that were wonderful wives, and they didn't know Jesus. So so please don't hear, if you're here this morning as a skeptic, that I said that only Christians can have a good marriage. No, I'm saying that only Christians can have a return back to the covenant nature of marriage and be able to put to death the consumer nature of marriage. Would you readily agree with me? I don't want to go off too far but without getting at least some you know, agreement here. Would you agree that you were born with a consumer mindset, a sin nature? Okay. Would you agree that as much as you love your spouse, if you're here today married, as much as you love your spouse, that you still went into marriage very much with a kind of consumer appetite and a consumer mindset? I mean, as much as we would want to say, no, I just love her. I love her as Christ loves the church. We're going to get to that in a second. And as much as you aspire, you know, we come into this thing still having to battle with this consumer mindset. Adam and Eve, they were obedient to their own desire rather than the desires of God. And the ripple effect of sin has affected every relationship ever since. And they hide themselves from each other and they hide themselves from God. It's not because they became suddenly ugly in physical appearance. They became vulnerable to each other's selfishness. Honestly, it's not a sense of vulnerability. This sense of vulnerability is a part of every one of our marriages. Again, you can love Jesus this morning. I mean, you can really love Jesus. And you're still going to have to contend with this part of you that says, well, you know, I'd prefer it this way, and I really want this. And, you know, we have this consumer nature. And so how do we put that to death? Does it ever die? Well, that's the good news of the gospel. It's good news of, of God keeping his covenant with us, even though we were covenant breakers, that he keeps his covenant. He said, I have been faithful even when you have been unfaithful. And it's that basis of covenant keeping of what God has done through Jesus Christ that gives hope to every marriage in here. Whether you are acing the test, whether you are struggling right now, whether you are just starting, whether you've been married for 40, 50, 60 years, that's what gives us hope this morning, that we can take this consumer mindset that we have and say, no, I really want my marriage to reflect the covenant nature of Christ in the church. I really want that to be the model that I would aspire to. Will we ace the test? I, I don't believe so. Somewhere around 30 or 40, I, I figure it out. If I live to be 80, 90, or 100, I'm still going to struggle with sin. Pride, selfishness, all these different things. But I don't have to be a slave to sin any longer. And that's the hope that we bring into our marriage relationship. Not that, that we're not going to have to battle with the selfishness. We don't have to be a slave to it anymore, guys. There is a higher call. And Christ puts that higher call on every Christian. And we'll see that in Ephesians chapter 5. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Let me read you a quote from John Piper that I just love, that, uh, of how this sin affects us, how this mindset, before we go to the hope that is found in what Christ has done, 
I, I love this words of, this again is from this momentary marriage. John Piper, he said, before the fall, what was and what ought to have been were the same. Do you get that? What marriage was supposed to be and what marriage was, was the same. What God designed marriage to be and what Adam and Eve were experiencing was the same. There wasn't a stretch. There wasn't a falling from that. Then he goes on to say, but now what is and what ought to be are not the same. Once the fall comes, once sin comes in the world, what is the reality of your life and what ought to be God's high calling, there's a gap there. Well, do you follow me so far? Or better yet, do you follow Piper on this one? He said, I ought to be humbly and gladly submissive to God, but I am not this huge gap between what I am and what I ought to be colors everything about me. And folks, it colors our marriage and our attitude in marriage. Because what ought to be and what is are two different things. There's a reality to the frailty of of our lives and there's the, the reality to this high calling. Well, if we left right there and we just, man, this is just discouraging. I don't know that I really like this sermon. Because all you pointed out is that, you know, there was a test and we, you know, we didn't ace the test. In fact, we wonder if we even passed the test. Here's the good news and the hope of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 5. This is that famous section where we, we get out to this uh, place, you know, wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's in this passage in Ephesians chapter 5 that the Apostle Paul is talking about married life. He's talking about family life. He talks about children. He talks about parents. And he talks about all these different things. And sometimes we get in the argument of, okay, what does it really mean that the wife should submit? And we spend so much time, you know, arguing about, okay, what this level of submission. Well, I would submit if he loved me like Christ loved the church. And we put all these conditions and we start to argue about, okay, who's going to lead out on this? That is not what Paul is trying to get us to do. He's not trying to create an argument. Okay, man, if, if the husband's really loved Christ, uh, loved his wife as Christ loved the church, uh, she wouldn't have any problems. That's not really the case that Paul's making. He, he's calling us to this high calling. Wives, here is my command. It's not Paul's command. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I just don't like Paul's theology. If we understand how the Bible was given, that God, you know, God didn't sit there and, and just, I think, give every word, but he inspired using the personalities of the different writers. But when I read this, this is not Paul's words. This is God's word. So don't try to, to make it trivial and say, well, Paul was just a chauvinist, chauvinist or he was this or that or the other. No, this is God's word. It's his word to his body, to us as believers. And so when he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Uh, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This isn't Paul's feelings on marriage. But this is God's word and instruction, this high calling. And look what it says in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Have we heard that before? Paul goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. He goes all the way back to the verse 24, and that first pronouncement, he says, okay, you, you want to get back to the design? You, you want to know what marriage is, what God always intended marriage to be? He said, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. 
He said, let's go back a couple thousand years and let's go back to the actual author of marriage. And so he quotes Genesis 2.24 there and he lays this foundation of a covenant marriage, a covenant relationship in marriage. And then look what he says in verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. If you don't hear anything else this morning, I pray that you will hear this. Because a lot of times we just, you know, we, we stop there. We read about this. Wives submit to your husbands. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. We, we get that and we start arguing about what does that really mean? What does that look like in real life? And, and, and instead of letting it go all the way through the passage and seeing really the heart of what Paul was saying, and, and I don't think we really get to the heart of it until verse 25. I, I, I really don't believe, I mean, I'm sorry, verse 32. I don't really believe that we get all that he's saying previously until we get down to that anchoring statement. And he said, this mystery is profound. Let's take that word mystery. In the Greek, that word mystery is not like you and I would talk about mystery where it's a whodunit. You know, was it the chef in the parlor with the hatchet? You know, like the old clue game or something. That's a mystery. Okay, we were trying to put the clues together to figure out who done it. That's not how this word in the Greek, the, the Greek word that Paul uses here is, here is something that has always been, but is just now revealed. That's how he uses this word mystery. That's the word that's used there. And the best illustration I know is if you're going to throw a surprise party for somebody and, uh, you know, you walk in that room, it's your surprise party. And they all yell surprise, and, and really that was the first clue that you had. But does that mean that all the preparation, all the gifts, all the cake, all the punch, all the different things had not been already assembled? No, all of that was there. It was just a surprise to you. It's now revealed to you that this was a surprise party and that you're the one being surprised. But it was there for a long time, the preparation for this. That's what Paul says. Now, why is he saying that? What, what has been revealed? What is it that now has been revealed? What, what was different when he quotes Genesis 2.24 than the first time it was quotes and pronounced in marriage? Well, a lot of things. Thousands of years have happened, but here's the significant thing. Here's the one thing you need to know of what had happened between Genesis 2.24 and, and Ephesians 5. The work of Christ. And what Paul is saying in this passage, he said, I I want you to know that the gospel was never meant to be a picture of marriage. Marriage, even though it has existed now, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people had been married by this time. He said, I want you to know that even, you know, that very first marriage, all of it has to be seen in light of what Christ was going to do for the church. That's the profound. That's why he says this is a profound mystery. Do you get that? When we look at our marriage, we're not saying, you know, that's kind of like a picture of the gospel. I mean, we, we are saying that that should be a picture of the gospel. Not when we look at the gospel and say, well, that's kind of like marriage. No, no, one is deeper. One is a foundational thing. The other one is a, a, a learned thing from that. And he says, look, he didn't see the fullness in this because the finished work of Christ was not accomplished yet. But now that Christ has come, now that we're living in the church age and we see the finished work of Christ, now you can have a better understanding of what marriage was always meant to be. And what is that? A covenant relationship. 
me say it this way. We don't add identification to the gospel through our marriage. The gospel in the work of Christ adds identification to our marriage. Do we, do we have that? Do, do, because this is such an important part. It's really the point that he's making there. You might think, well, that, you know, Bobby, it's kind of trivial. I don't, I don't know that I really get it. No, folks, I, I pray that God gives you understanding of that because the only way that we can have this is, is beginning to see that marriage is a picture of the gospel, that the marriage is a picture of God's covenant love for us that has been fulfilled through the work of Christ. And then once we kind of grasp this theological mindset, then we can get very practical with it. Each of us were born, again, remember, apart from God with a sin nature. Would you agree that that's how the Bible describes our birth? It uses a little bit more inflammatory language. We were the enemies of God when we were apart from God. But would you, again, would you say that, yes, I was born with a sin nature apart from God and with a sin nature? With that came selfishness, with that came a consumer mindset, with that came, became, uh, came a vulnerability. Nobody had to teach you how to be scared. Have you ever had the frustration of a little baby who just won't stop crying because of the fright of whatever? And you, just go, you know, it's okay, I'm here, daddy's here, mama's here. And, and yet you can't you know, kind of bring comfort there? Folks, that's part of that whole nature, that vulnerability. And what we begin to see here is, this is the good news, that through Christ we can return to the design that God always intended. One of the happiest um, sessions when I do premarriage counseling uh, is the first session because we go back to Genesis chapter 2 and the one thing that I want to leave in the heart of that future husband and that future wife is, guys, even though thousands of years have come and gone, in Christ, you can go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Because what Christ has done, you can have this marriage made in heaven. Will it be perfect? No, because again, we're following people in a fallen world. Will we ace the test? No. But can we pass the test? You better believe it. See, through Christ, we were made to have a right relationship with God. Through Christ, we can have a right relationship with each other. Through Christ, we can have a covenant relationship in marriage and not a a, a relationship based on vulnerability, but based on security. Let me close with this statement. Can you imagine a marriage that was truly based on not how lovable you are, but how much you're loved. Now grasp that. Think about that. What if your marriage was truly based on not how lovable you are, but how much you're loved? Who would want a marriage like that? Because is that not the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ? Let me, let me tie these together. Did Christ love you because you were lovely? No, he loved you to make you lovely. 
He, he died to take my sins away so that he took on all of my sins, as it says in Corinthians, and then I got his righteousness, the great exchange. I mean, is this not incredible that, you know, it's not based on my performance, but on what he was able to do for me? See, your, your whole standing as a Christian this morning, your whole standing in Jesus Christ is not how lovable you are, folks. It is that how much you have been loved by Jesus Christ. And this is what he says. This is the very foundation then. This gospel, this mystery that's profound. He said, this is the basis of marriage in the New Testament. So you and I are the benefactors of understanding. If I, if I understand this correctly, if, I, if I've done my homework, you and I in the, in the church age, post the work of Christ, have a better understanding of marriage than the people in the Old Testament. They saw something that, you know, was going to happen. Kept on pointing that way. It's already happened. Now Christ has fulfilled that. Truth is, in just a moment, uh, every one of us are going to leave here. And if you're married and and you go out today, uh, you're going to act as either a consumer or you're going to act in the hopes and in the picture of this covenant. Every action, every thought, every deed, everything that we do is going to be really filed in one of these two folders. Okay, yeah, that was an act of, of you know, of, of just my consumer nature. Or this was an act of covenant love because of what Christ has done for me. He's given me the ability to truly love my wife as Christ loved the church given her the ability to submit unto the leadership of, of, of me as the husband as the church submits to Jesus Christ. Folks, these are not offensive terms in, in Ephesians 5. This is not archaic stuff. Man, the Bible, it's, just, it's old. It's old-fashioned. That's just not how it is anymore. And that is the saddest part of it. You're right. It really isn't that's how it is anymore. But by the grace of God, he calls us back to Genesis 2.24. And he says, because of the work of Christ, you can have, even as fallen people, you can have this hope. And husbands, you can love your wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, you can gleefully, wonderfully submit into your husband's leadership and his love as Christ does the church. Why? Because it is a finished picture now in Christ Jesus. And I pray this morning that God gives us understanding of that. That when we do walk from here, and as we do live out the reality of marriage Monday through Saturday, that this theology and this theological basis takes on real-life application into our lives. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you that you have made covenant with us, not because we were lovely, but because you loved us so much. You have kept that covenant with us, not because we continue to love you back. Father, we look at the Old Testament, and Israel is a picture of our lives when we, we rebel, then, then we start to have some repentance. We run to you. You, you put your arms around us, and, and then we get full of ourselves, and we run off again. And yet, Father, thank you that while we were faithless and unfaithful, you remained faithful. Father, thank you for the hope that we have for every marriage. Father, there is no such thing as a lost cause for marriage as long as you are involved, Father. As much as we have strayed, Father, from a true covenant love, 
as much as we have not made marriage the priority human relationship, as much as we have threatened, okay, we'll just divorce it. No matter what has been done, Father, you bring us to the place at the foot of the cross now. And Father, by your grace and by the work of Christ, we can have hope for even the most damage of marriage. And I pray that you would spring that hope, Father, the hope of the gospel into our hearts this day. What a high calling. Impossible to live out this high calling without the power of Christ. But Father, because of what Christ has done, I can be that husband. Carly can be that wife. Each husband and wife here, Father, we can, through the the power of your Spirit, by the provision of your covenant, by the good news of the finished work of Christ, you draw us back to Genesis 2.24. And I praise you for it. And I thank you, Father, that you never give up. You never strayed. But you gave your own, even when I was so unlovely. So we love you this morning, Father. Build up our marriages. Help us, truly, uh, to, to, to have a marriage that displays the gospel, not just displays a good husband and a good wife, that displays this truth and this beauty of the gospel, Father. Do that in our lives as we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.